This talk is the third talk in a four-tape series by Joel titled Practicing the Precepts, recorded December 19, 1999 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So this morning I'm going to give the third in a series of four talks on practicing moral precepts. Now, the reason mystics practice moral precepts is to interrupt the self-centered conditioning that we have that represents an obstacle to our own enlightenment, our own realization of truth, of who we ultimately are. And the primary thing that hides or veils that from us is our own self-centeredness. It's not like we have to attain enlightenment, although it's often uh, talked about that way. We really simply have to remove the veils, the obstacles, to discover our true nature, which is already enlightened and always has been. And one of the ways that this self-centeredness gets projected into the world is through our speech, our actions, and our thoughts. And it is a pattern of conditioning. So the precepts help us to break that pattern, interrupt that pattern. As with all spiritual practices, the practicing precepts requires that we apply four fundamental principles. Pay attention, make a commitment, practice detachment, and practice surrender. So what the precepts are designed to do is draw attention to those typical situations that come up in our everyday lives where our response is going to be self-centered. We're going to behave in some self-centered fashion. So by vowing to keep these precepts, that automatically will draw attention in your life to here's a situation where, let's say, oh, I'm lying. And then that allows us to examine why we are lying. So we make a commitment to continue to do this, to actually practice these precepts, not just pay lip service to them. Then we have an opportunity to see where our self-centered conditioning manifests in concrete forms in our life. And once we can see that, then we can practice detachment from that. And detachment isn't being stoical or cold. It simply means recognizing this pattern as something objective. It isn't my true nature. It's something that's been conditioned, and I can see it happening. And so I'm about to tell a little white lie, and I, I'm totally aware of what's going on, and that is what allows me just to not do it. And in that not doing it, we surrender to this open space of freedom, which is our true nature. It's not about substituting some other conditioning. It's really about ultimately discovering that open space. That open space which is naturally selfless, naturally loving, and naturally compassionate. Now, sometimes we want to jumpstart this a little bit, and often we are afraid to act compassionately, selflessly, in a loving manner. And so when we find we are protecting ourselves and we can let that go, then we can, uh, as an experiment, say, well, what would happen if I just acted out of compassion here, without regard for my own interests. It's scary. 
We learn to overcome that fear through the doing, and that is also the surrender. And so the precepts allow us to discover for ourselves in very concrete ways what the mystics are talking about when they say our true nature is love, is compassion. And that's something we really have to generate. It's already there. We just have to remove the obstacles. It's very important to remember the precepts are not about self-judgment in terms of, oh, I'm a bad little boy or girl because I lied or something like that. They are tools to use to help us awaken. The other thing that's very important to remember is that selfless love and compassion always overrides a specific precept. So with those two caveats, these precepts can be very useful. Now this morning I'm going to talk about the sixth, the seventh, and the eighth precepts which are integrity, honor, and sexual restraint. So let's begin with the sixth precept, which is integrity, which in our version reads, not to take what does not belong to me. Now, this means not only refraining from gross forms of theft, like armed robbery or shoplifting (laughs) or embezzlement or forgery or something like that, which I hope uh, most of you are beyond being tempted to do that, although one never knows. Uh, And you should start where you are, by the way. If you are a secret armed robber, then you start there. I'm serious. You're not lost. Then start observing your armed robbery behavior. But for, I think, most of us, it really applies to smaller things. And this is very important because these are things we tend to overlook or justify or rationalize away. For example, taking paper clips from the office. Well, they don't pay me enough anyway, so this is my little, you know, so forth. Returning change when you get too much change back from a clerk or a bank teller or something. So you're standing in line in the Albertsons and you give a $10 bill for, I don't know, your soda or whatever, and the clerk mistook it for a $20 bill and starts giving you change for a 20 You watch the mind say, ooh, goody, ooh, I wonder if she'll notice. It's conditioned to do that. Don't, don't feel guilty. Don't feel bad. The point about this is to become aware and see what the mind is doing. And then when you are aware and when you see, oh, this is really a little greed here popping up, then you can very simply say, I I think you've overcharged me. Undercharged. hmm? Undercharged me. Overpaid. I've overpaid you. No, you've overpaid. Whatever. (laughs) You get the idea. (laughs) You can see math was not one of my strong at school. Um, So it's by paying attention to these little incidences that crop up in our lives where we see little greed arising. And instead of saying, oh, well, everybody does that, so it's okay for me to do that, we say no, because if I just keep rolling along businesses as usual, then I keep perpetuating that self-centered conditioning. So it's not about becoming a better person socially, although that will happen as a uh, side effect. But it's really, in a way, paradoxically selfish. It's for your own liberation. You can even become very meticulous in practicing this. And for instance, when you are a guest in someone's house, 
They'll just go open the refrigerator <laughs> looking for a Coke, which I used to do all the time. I was very brash. You could take as a default position here, don't take anything that isn't offered to you. And then it becomes very interesting. You walk into a, someone's house and there's a dish of pistachios sitting out there. And has it actually been offered? You can read the circumstances. Well, yes, it's out there in a bowl. Yes, the host or hostess knew people were coming. So it's obviously been offered. You don't have to make a nuisance of yourself asking permission to eat every little individual pistachio. But it's in the meticulousness of this that you really get to see that little bit of grasping, that little bit of greed that keeps arising in our lives, that keeps wanting to get a little bit more, that we want the biggest piece of lemon meringue pie and so forth. And that is where our delusion happens. It's true. As we progress practicing this precept, and all these precepts, by the way, as you practice them, they reveal more and more. It's really fascinating when you get into them. We see there are subtler forms of stealing that don't have to do with stealing material uh, things. So, for instance, you could be stealing company time by doing personal business at work. So maybe uh, you're paid for eight hours work in an office situation and you go surf the Internet looking for, I don't know, bargains for your Christmas shopping or something. Now, again, it depends on the situation. Some work situations, it's acceptable to do that. If you've got nothing to do, you can, uh, you can surf the Internet. If you want to use the Xerox machine for your own personal stuff, I've been in, in places like that where they don't care. They say, sure, that's part of the job. Go ahead. So you have to use your intelligence to figure out what's going on. And we know in situations like that when we are stealing time. But stealing time is a form of theft. You are paid for a certain amount of work. You agreed to this contract, and now you're not living up to it. You're not fulfilling it. Uh, stealing attention from other people. This is really interesting. For instance, let's say it's your sister's wedding day. And you choose this day to announce that you need bypass heart surgery. <laughs> That's a pretty gross example, but do you see what you're doing? It's really, it's your sister's day, and you're taking attention away from that by choosing this day to announce something dramatic. And we do this more subtly in, in conversations when we, people hog a conversation, you know. Uh, so again, we're really... This is greed. This is uh, grasping. We want all the attention for ourselves. The minute it starts to flow off somewhere else, oh, we do something and we say something or whatever to get it back. You watch how this happens. Stealing opportunities from other people to learn from their mistakes. This is very subtle and very tricky. You can see it often with children. Sometimes our motives are very mixed. We are genuinely concerned for children or other younger people or people who are in our care, charge somehow, students or whatever. And we, we want them to succeed and we get overprotective and we rob them of the opportunity of learning through making their own mistakes. So just a, a, an easy example is if you're always helping your child out with their homework, if you're basically doing their homework for them, not letting them struggle with their homework, not letting them fail and, and go into class and have the teacher say, no, it's wrong, and learn from that. And there are other ways we do that, even among our peers. 
And it's something very, uh, very tricky to, to discover, but watch for. Each of us has our own path in life, our own destiny in life, if you like, our own karma. And we can help each other, we can support each other, we can give advice to each other, we can share our experiences, but we have to honor that spark of the divine that is in everybody. And that means allowing them fundamentally to live their life. Even if it's going in a way that we totally disapprove of, even if it's going in a way that frightens us, as long as we've done our best to be supportive, to communicate and so forth, we can't grasp onto them. We cannot be possessive of another person in that sense. The point about this kind of meticulousness in watching our behavior is not to become a saint. But the more meticulous you are in practicing the precept, the more opportunities there are for you to become aware of what's going on. It's that simple. And the more we become aware of what's going on inside us, the more we see this conditioning. And by the way, it's, it's sometimes uh, distasteful to see our self-centeredness when we begin to practice these things. We realize we're much more self-centered than we suspected. But after a while, it becomes quite fascinating how we are controlled by these patterns And then, the more we are aware of these patterns, the more we can, as I said before, just drop them, interrupt them, break them. It doesn't mean that once you drop a particular pattern that's gone for life, it'll come back. This is long conditioning, but it comes back in a weaker form, in a weaker form, and weaker and weaker. And finally, it's just like an old broken record playing back there. And it has almost no hooking power. It just goes on, you recognize it, there it is. So this is why it's important to be meticulous. Here's what the Tibetan master Dilgo Kinsei says. It is important to look at your most subtle attitudes and intentions. Never think that any tiny act is insignificant just because it is so small. For the least negative action can set off devastating consequences. In the same way a single minute spark can set fire to an entire forest. The consequences he's talking about aren't necessarily consequences for the world out there. If you take home three paper clips from office, the, you know, uh, civilization isn't going to collapse. The consequences are for you, though. If we are not moving forward on a spiritual path, waking up, becoming more aware of our conditioning and starting to dismantle it, our conditioning gets stronger and stronger. It's not neutral. Slowly but surely, it just keeps building and building and building. So it's a choice here that we have to practice. This isn't a commandment coming down the voice of God saying you must practice or you're going to hell. It is built into our situation. The more selfish we are, the more suffering we will have. The more selfless we are, the more happiness we will enjoy. It's just a law of of the cosmos, a, a spiritual law of the cosmos. And our freedom is, in every moment, to choose to wake up. We can't always choose to get rid of our conditioning instantaneously. It doesn't work like that. It's not like making a New Year's resolution. But we can choose to practice. We can choose to become aware. And slowly but surely, we can choose to become free of this. When you practice this precept to its 
end, if you like, ultimately what she realizes, nothing belongs to you. And it's something worth considering just from a philosophical point of view. Ownership itself is a social fiction. Property is a social fiction. If very convenient, we need it uh, to get along as a society, but it doesn't exist as some sort of objective reality. I don't own these glasses. This is an agreement we all have. There's no physical thing connecting me to these glasses called ownership. We just invented this game. I own this, and until you give me something that I consider of equivalent value, I continue to own it. Then if she gives me that beautiful little ring she's got, and she wants my glasses, and we exchange, then the ownership passes to her, and I get the ownership of the ring. It's all a game. It's like Monopoly. We recognize that. We don't own anything. We don't own our own bodies. You know? They're here. We kind of seem like we're living in them. And then, for a while, sort of borrowed, and then they are taken away. If you practice some meditation of the kind we were doing earlier this morning, you will see you don't own your own thoughts. And in fact, if you practice these precepts, you'll discover that. Your mind just keeps on thinking up all that old conditioned stuff. You think you're in control of your thoughts, and sometimes it feels like we are, but when you just let your mind alone, a jada, 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 it's like having the soap opera on, you know. <laughs> we don't own our own feelings. We would like to always feel peaceful and pleasant and kind, but we get angry, we get upset, we get fearful. We don't have any control over that. We don't own that. Emotions arise in us. So what do we really own fundamentally? So practicing this precept, taking it to its ultimate conclusion, is giving everything back to consciousness, giving everything back to the divine, not owning anything. And guess what? This is always the judo trick. Then you're free. Nothing to protect. Nothing to hang on to. Then it's all a gift. It's all grace. Just there to enjoy. The seventh precept is honor. To regard my word as sacred, not to give it lightly, but once given, strive to honor it under all circumstances. It's very interesting that uh, one of the things that the Native Americans, the Indians, were most angered and astonished by their encounter with European whites was how easily whites could break their word, break their promises, even when it was given in the most solemn ceremonial circumstances. And so we have all this from our, you know, frontier culture. White men speak with forked tongue and all that. It's almost become a kind of cliche. But it reflects a kind of horror that uh, people living in a sacred society have for our attitude about what our word means. Because in sacred societies, your word is sacred. Your word is sacred. It's not because there are courts and lawyers and you can sue for breach of contract and so forth. It has to do with who you are, your honor, your integrity, yourself as a sacred person. And the reason is quite practical. In sacred societies, in pre-industrial societies, 
they recognize that our words more than anything else are what link us together in a web of mutual interdependence. We have to rely on each other, what we say. We are not isolated entities, beings, individuals. We are social beings. And our life, our biological life, depends on society, community. Even if you imagine you can go off to Alaska and you're going to go off in the wilderness there and, and live all on your own and hunt and fish and uh, make your own log cabin and so forth, you're still going to take an axe with you, you're still going to take a gun with you, which are all made, and not only made by other people, but the whole history and knowledge of how to do that goes back to our earliest ancestors. How to smelt steel and so forth. If you went there bone naked, you would be dead in a week. It's not just the physical things. It's our culture, our heritage, the knowledge that's passed down, all has been developed by people before us. We are totally dependent on each other to live. And so we are constantly depending on each other's word. You give your word, I rely on your word. It's sacred, your word, because to fulfill your word, to keep your promise, usually requires a little sacrifice, a little selflessness. So, let's say in, uh, I don't know, 200 years ago, you might have woken up grumpy one morning, and you're supposed to go to a barn raising, and you don't feel like it, but you gave your word to go help your neighbor raise the barn. The neighbor really depends on your showing up. You know, if there's no place to store the crops and put the livestock in the winter, people are going to die. You give your word uh, when you go to town to pick up flour for somebody. That's a little extra thing. It's a little inconvenient, but you gave your word to do it. We lose track of that in our society, which is one of the reasons that we're losing the sense of the sacredness of our own words because it doesn't seem directly that anybody's life normally depends on our word, but we still rely on each other in little ways. And when we keep our word, it usually requires a little bit of sacrifice. So, the first step in practicing this precept is become mindful of what comes out of your mouth when you're making promises. Because we make them very casually. Oh yeah, I'll call you tomorrow. We don't even think of it in terms of we've made a promise. So, for instance, actually somebody, uh, a friend, might ask you to get some information for them. And you say, oh yeah, I'll get it and I'll give you a ring tomorrow. Then tomorrow comes along and you're busy and so forth. And you say, well, it wasn't urgent. They don't really need that information, so you don't bother calling them. Well, you're breaking your word in that situation. And to keep your word in that situation means to make a little bit of sacrifice, even if you have to give up your coffee break to call them or whatever. You make the time to call them. The second step is to be mindful of your speech in the sense you don't give your word lightly. And again, this is the other side of the coin of the same problem. Because we don't have any respect for our words and our promises, we tend to just to throw them out as though they were valueless, as though they were nothing. 
But if we pay attention and not give our word lightly, then if your friend asks you for some information, you say, listen, I'll try to get it for you, but I'm quite busy. I might not be able to get back to you until next week. So if you need it before then, ask somebody else. It's the meticulousness with which we phrase things. It can be quite difficult not to give your word lightly because people pressure you. Oh, please, can't you do this for me? Oh, please, please. We have to say no. There are a lot of no's on the spiritual path. And it's a very good place to start learning to say no when people want you to promise to do something. You know, no, I can't go out Friday night because that's my night to stay home and do spiritual reading. No, I can't lie uh, to your Aunt Tilly and say you're not home because I've taken a uh, vow not to lie. No, I can't sleep with you, even though we're on a business trip and no one will know because I vowed to my spouse to be faithful. No, this comes up all the time, you see. It's really a matter of, uh, in a certain, we would put it in modern terms, self-respect. Who you are is what you promise, what you say, what you do. Don't treat it as though it were something valueless that just you throw out any time. Be careful when you promise. Your promise is extremely important for yourself and for other people who are going to rely on it. So we need the courage and the strength to be able to say no when we really can't keep our promise. The third step in this is that when we do give our word, we want to strive to honor it. This is important. This is a, a going the extra mile. Sometimes we can't help breaking a promise. If you've given a promise to be someplace and your car breaks down, well, you can't honor the promise. The physical circumstances prevented you. As the I Ching says, no blame. You tried to get there and it just doesn't happen. Don't waste one moment feeling guilty about that if you've done your best. Sometimes we encounter a higher moral priority. And this is where the spirit of the law comes in. So if you've given your promise to be somewhere at a certain time and then you're driving there and you see an accident on the highway and somebody sprawled on the street bleeding, well, your higher moral priority is to pull over and, and see if you can help there and, not, uh, and then you have to break your promise to the person you uh, promised to be someplace at a certain time. So we have to be aware of that as well. But again, we were striving, we were intending. Often it's tough to decide what's a higher moral priority or what you should do. And these precepts, by the way, are guidelines. They are not uh, perfectly written out roadmaps. They give you general idea of which direction to proceed. And part of working with these precepts is the challenge of struggling with them. This is not, a, a, an e it doesn't make life easier, it makes it more challenging. So let's say, again, you promise to be someplace and you're driving down the highway and you see a car pulled over and the hood's up so and the lights are flashing and you see a couple of young guys sitting around talking nonchalantly in front of the car. doesn't seem to be anybody injured. There's plenty of traffic. But let's say it's your son's graduation. I would probably say, oh, somebody else will stop. This is more important. You know, graduations only happen once in a lifetime. So, you know, life is relative. That's what it means that life is relative. Flexible. We're always having to decide, judge, and so forth. It's not a program. 
But this is what makes us alive, alert to situations, alert to love, compassion, alert to our conditioning. So these are some of the uh, things that you want to look for when you're trying to practice this precept of keeping promises. Finally, you have to keep promises you make to yourself. This is very important, particularly for spiritual seekers. For instance, we make ourselves promises to keep the precepts. And then we ignore it. Or you might promise yourself you're going to go on a 10-day retreat. Maybe you've never been on a meditation retreat before. You sign up for a 10-day retreat, then doubts and fears start to arise. You've promised yourself to do this. And don't let the ego mind talk you out of it with a lot of rationalizations. It's keeping promises to ourselves to do the spiritual practices often then when we then have resistance or doubts or don't want to, that allows us to continue to see, become aware of this conditioning and to ultimately dismantle it. So we must honor the promises we make to ourselves. A spiritual path is not something you just read about, you just fantasize about. It's something you actually live. Live day to day, moment to moment. And working with these precepts is an excellent way to help you do that. All right, the eighth precept, sexual restraint. To make of sex a sacrament, not to profane it in the pursuit of selfish ends. Let's start with the second part, because it's a little easier to understand. Not to profane sex in the pursuit of selfish ends. So what does this mean? In the first talk I gave in this series, I said that um, there were two precepts that were a little bit more what we could call modernized than your traditional precepts you find in, in other traditions. One had to do with stewardship, and the other has to do with sex. The traditional precepts relating to sex are much more restrictive, usually, and much more specific. For instance, you'll find, in most cultures anyway, a very strong prohibition against sex outside of marriage. And there's a very good reason for this. It's not just a bunch of Puritans. In pre-industrial cultures, the family unit was not just an emotional unit, it was an economic and social unit and a foundation of the society. And in pre-industrial cultures where there was not reliable birth control and where women did not have economic independence, it is very important when you engage in sex that you're going to have some way of taking care of the child, raising the child in an economically and socially viable environment. And if you were going to have sex, eventually you were going to have kids, basically. So that precept is really not about you, it's about the children. Don't do it unless you're going to get married and raise this child uh, and be responsible. Now, historical conditions have changed a lot of that. We do have reliable birth control. And we, uh, and as a result of the Industrial Revolution, women can work and support themselves and even support a child. So there are more options available to us now. 
So our precept doesn't give you such specific guidelines about when to do the dirty deed and when not to. It's more general, and it's more general because it reflects our historical situation. But in spite of these changes, we still must exercise restraint over our sexual impulses. Because if we don't, we are liable to cause great suffering. And that's really the key here. It's nothing to do about whether sex is good or bad or anything. It's about the suffering that we're going to cause if we are not responsible about our sexual life. So, for instance, taking again the obvious ones, we profane sex by rape, by any form of physically coerced sexuality. We're causing tremendous suffering just to satisfy our own physical impulses. Again, I hope most of you here aren't secret rapists or don't have a sex slave locked in your basement someplace, so whatever you do, if you do, start there. No, really. (laughs) But uh, more uh, common, I think, uh, don't commit adultery or don't have sex with somebody who is already in a committed relationship. Adultery is not necessarily just being formally married these days. Marriage has become so slippery. But if you are attracted to someone and they are in a committed relationship, refrain from trying to seduce them and and so forth. And certainly refrain from uh, having actual sex with them. Because for your sexual pleasure, you're going to possibly interrupt and destroy or cause great damage to a an important relationship here. How many of you have ever experienced sexual betrayal? That you thought you were in a relationship with somebody who was faithful and it turned out they weren't. How many of you have ever experienced that? Did, did it cause you suffering? Huh? Big time suffering? Huh? Okay. We got to remember our suffering. That's what compassion means. We know what it's like to suffer, and then we know what other people are going to go through. Refrain from having sex without birth control, unless you want children, unless you're prepared to take on the responsibility of raising children. Very important. And again, it's our own focus and our own immediate self-centered gratification that, that uh, overrides that. Because we all know we should do that. But we have to be meticulous about it. We have to make sacrifices sometimes. So, I don't know, there you are, stuck on a desert island for a night and with somebody beautiful and attractive, and they're attracted to you, and nobody's in a committed relationship, and da-da-da, but there are no condoms, there's no birth control pills. There are other things you can do, but <laughs> don't, don't risk bringing a child into the world that you're not prepared to take care of. This, you see, because we have less specific precepts, more responsibility falls on our shoulders. We have to assume that responsibility without the specific precept of when and when not to do this. Now we really have to judge and decide, and we have to really do it in a mature way. More subtly, we profane sex when we use it to manipulate people. And the obvious examples today are in the workplace. If, uh, if you have subordinates and you make their raises depend on having sex with you or whatever, you're using sex to manipulate the situation. 
Conversely, if you uh, sleep with your boss in order to get a promotion, you're doing the same thing from the flip side of the coin. And there are other ways we manipulate people, more subtle ways sexually, by withholding uh, our sexual favors unless we get something else and turning it into some sort of bargaining chip. And then we're profaning. Most subtly, perhaps, is what I would call a mind game of sex in which there's no sexual activity, uh, overt sexual activity, I should say, but we still engage in little uh, uh, mental flirtations and psychological conquests for ego enhancement. And I don't know how widespread this is. I started in Hollywood practicing precepts like this. And one of the precepts I, I took was a, a limited vow of celibacy. I didn't quite know why I was doing it at the time, but these traditions seemed to recommend that highly. So I thought, well, I'll try to see what happens. Well, one of the things that astounded me was how much of my energy was going into this kind of uh, sexual mind game of seduction. And I began to notice, first in myself, how much time I spent trying to make myself attractive when I was with an attractive woman, trying to be suave and witty and so forth, trying to elicit a, a, a response, a kind of an arousal, I mean a subtle arousal. And the whole purpose of this game was, oh, I, never, I was never actually going to sleep with that person, but I could have if I wanted to. It's like I seduced that person in my mind. I had a mental conquest. And then I'd feel, you know, great for an hour to wear off and do the, do the game again. Sometimes it didn't work, and then you feel really bad. What's wrong with me? I'm not attracted. That person ignored me all through lunch. Maybe it's a business lunch. It has nothing to do with this, but this would be going on as an undercurrent. I was really astonished to see how much time I spent in this, and then I also became very alert, and it seemed to me a lot of people around me were also engaged in this sort of uh, mental seduction, if you like. And it all has to do with enhancing ego, and it's all very transitory and very ephemeral, and it consumes a lot of our time and energy, and uh, uh, in some cases, our resources, you know? If you're spending a lot of money on uh, uh, makeup and clothes and everything and to make yourself look attractive for this, you're really uh, using a tremendous amount of resources for something that is so transitory, ephemeral, so this is something I learned by taking a little vow of celibacy because the vow cut off any possibility. When this would start, I'd say, well, what are you doing this for? You're celibate, you know, and then I could watch. It wasn't that it stopped, you see. It went on, but then I could watch and say, well, this, why is this going on? What's going on here? So when we practice sexual restraint, we get to observe these subtle ways that our sexual impulses uh, condition us and shape our behavior. Now, the reason that was such an important insight was I also began to realize, in retrospect, all my life I had had almost an unconscious <laughs> idea that ultimately uh, happiness and sex were an equation. That really, this, one of the big, big secrets of life is if you had good sex, that would be happiness. And I began to realize just from watching 
my responses in these situations, how ephemeral sexual pleasure itself is. It's never going to bring us abiding happiness. I don't care if you have the greatest night of sex in the world, you know, how long does it last, really? It's all very transitory, very ephemeral. And so, if you are looking for happiness, this is the insight for me, look elsewhere. Stop looking for it in sex. You'll never find it in sex. Now, having said that, there's nothing wrong with sex per se from a mystic's point of view, truly speaking. Some traditions have different uh, slants on it, but most mystical traditions are not puritanical about it because they think something is wrong with the sex act. It can be quite wonderful. It's just, don't be deluded. It's not going to bring you abiding happiness. That's our problem. It's our deluded attitude towards sex, not the sex itself. So if we let go of that idea, it's going to bring us ultimate happiness. Sex sort of settles back into its natural, wonderful place in our lives. It's not a big problem. Now, there is something about sex that makes it different from the other sorts of pleasures we get from things like food or shopping or whatever. And that is that occasionally, rarely, but it does happen, sex can actually transport us out of ourselves. In other words, we get a taste of true selflessness. Just a taste. So there is this transcendent aspect to sexual experience. And this is very seductive. We're getting a glimpse of the divine just for a moment. So naturally we grasp onto that and we don't recognize that what we are glimpsing is not really dependent on the sexual experience. It's not the pleasure of the sex that has thrilled us. It is the pleasure, the bliss of a moment of selflessness. So this is what it means to profane sex. When we grasp at the pleasure of sex as though it were the ultimate divine reality. So because sex has this ambiguity about it, because it is so seductive, because it does even have spiritual components that most, or I shouldn't say most, a lot of traditions recommend total abstinence if you're on a spiritual path. Don't even bother trying to deal with this, they say. Just stop. Now, this isn't true of all traditions, and it's true of uh, the Hindu tradition, in many ways, many aspects of Hindu tradition, not all of Hinduism. Uh, it's true of a large part of a Christian tradition. It's not true of Judaism. It's not true of Islam. It's true of some forms of Buddhism, especially the Buddhisms that are closer to the Indian Buddhism. But as you get farther, go farther east, it becomes less true. So it's not a, a blanket recommendation. It's just, what it's really saying is, look, this stuff is really, it's like, you know, fire. I mean, it's really tricky. So why don't you just forget it and go on your spiritual path? But there is a way to incorporate sex into the spiritual path, which a lot of traditions recognize. 
And in some ways, that's more difficult. It's easier just to say, well, I'll just you know, be done with that, at least on the active level, and go and do my practices. And certainly for uh, a tradition and a path that's designed for householders, it's very important then that we, uh, instead of always being conflicted in our minds about sex, take sex on as a spiritual practice. And these, these precepts are written for householders. If you flip the precept cards over, you'll see monastic precepts on the back that we take when we go on retreat for a limited period of time. So, this brings us to the first part of the precept. To make of sex a sacrament. So what does this mean? How do we talk about this? Oh, sex is a sacrament to me. But what exactly does that mean? In fact, this precept was written this way, I recall, because at the center in our practitioners group, we had, we had originally practiced with another set of precepts and we didn't find them as valuable. So we came back and we rewrote them and made them even more specific. And when we were having the discussions about sex, because that's a very difficult one, how do you summarize for today into a precept what, uh, what a uh, spiritual precept about sexuality, what it might look like? One of the first things everybody said, well, we, we, want, to, we want to acknowledge it's a sacrament, it's sacred. So what does that really mean? We can take a clue from Augustine, the great Christian mystic, St. Augustine. He defined a sacrament as the visible sign of an invisible grace. Something visible that's a sign of something invisible. Something that is a grace. So what is the grace that the act of sex is a sign of? And it's the grace of love. The gift of love. That's what grace means. So we say fundamentally... To make of sex a sacrament is to make sex an expression of love. Now, this is important because, especially in our culture, to really, again, know what we're talking about here. It does not necessarily mean you have to be in love with someone. Being in love is often not very selfless. It's often very possessive. It's often very grasping. So let's not equate them. In the modern times, with reliable birth control and so forth, it does not necessarily mean you have to have a lifelong commitment to another person. Sex doesn't automatically lead to children, and that responsibility isn't necessarily going to flow out of your action. But to genuinely love somebody means to be genuinely concerned about them. To be concerned about their welfare. So it might even be just a one-night stand. The difference here is, is there really genuine concern? Genuine love for that person? It's not that complicated. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that deep. Part of this expression of genuine concern and genuine caring is honesty and what makes a sexual situation appropriate for both partners is that both partners have hopefully an equal idea of what this event is going to mean. And this brings in other precepts we talked about, such as not lying about your feelings and so forth. 
But two people can be together and have real, genuine, caring concern for each other, and it can be for a quite limited period of time. And then the sex will be sacramental. It will be expressing that. So this is what, again, the spirit of the law that we always need to look to, particularly to guide us in this world where so many of the external restraints are no longer necessary. We are left to our own devices. We are left to our own inner wisdom and our own inner feelings about this. Now, of course, a lot of people have sex and generally care about their partners. And they are not spiritual seekers. They're not on a spiritual path. But they still can certainly love their partners. And in that case, from our point of view, sex is still a sacrament. But they're not conscious of it. It's still sacred. But since there's no sense of the sacred in their lives, they're not aware of it. We could say the spiritual seeker's task in making sex a sacrament is not only to make sure we make sex an expression of love and compassion, but become aware of why and how that is sacred. And so we could say, in a very rough way, for the sake of talking about it, we could say there are three stages to doing this. First of all, is recognizing that love is a gift. And this means it's not something that we (coughs) control. And you know that from your own life. If you ever tried to force yourself to love somebody, it doesn't work. Love wells up in us. If we get out of the way, it doesn't mean we just sit there like dummies and wait for it to happen. If we do spiritual practice, if we start to dismantle our selfishness, if we begin to let go of I, me, mine, it will happen more and more. But it is a gift. And when we are with somebody that we love, and particularly love in a sexual romantic way, to recognize Oh, how lucky. What a gift this is to really have gratitude and appreciation for what is going on inside us. That is how we honor the sacred nature of sex, the first way we do it. So it's not just focused on the sex and the pleasure and even the other person. It's in a greater perspective. The divine starts to enter in by realizing that this mysterious thing has entered into our lives, this wonderful, mysterious thing that we didn't earn, we didn't deserve. It wasn't because, uh, you know, we gave up stealing last year, and so now we're getting rewarded. No, it just comes and goes. It's wonderful. Then sex also becomes an expression of gratitude. When we have that attitude of appreciation and gratitude for love, then when we look at our partner, we see our partner as an ambassador from God. We don't just see a human being there. We see something beyond that human being. We see that human being appearing in our lives as a kind of gift themselves. Whether they're aware of it or not is irrelevant. And so the whole situation starts to take on this dimension. The next stage is when 
not only do we see the partner as a, an agent of the divine, but we see the partner as an actual manifestation of the divine. This usually depends on uh, our progress and other stages of our path. We begin to see everything as a manifestation of the divine. But we actually see that person that we are looking at as something more than just a human being. It's not negating their human beingness. You see the divine shining through. It's like a, a transparency that you see the light shining through. You still see the form, that particular form. But the light of love, the light of divine love shines through it right there directly. And then in the act of sex itself, this can become very powerful. Especially if we, in that act, surrender our, our self-concerns, our self-worries. Am I doing it right? Am I, you know, what she think of me? Did she come? No, 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 no. And we, then this, this gets really intense. That's when sex itself can really become a sacrament, in the, not just a visible sign, but a visible manifestation of that. If we are engaging in sex with that level of recognition, sex becomes an archetype that we are actually acting out of union between the human and the divine. It becomes how that is manifested right there. If you're engaged in sex for the purpose of having a child, that now has entered into it, that becomes an archetype for divine creation. You are acting out that archetype. It's not that you are symbolically doing something. This is how the divine creates, or one of the ways the divine creates. We didn't invent sex as a way of procreation. We are just the, uh, the actors, if you want it that way. Somebody else wrote the play. I'll think up all the ways I can create. Ooh, this one's wonderful. I'll invent sex. That'll be wonderful. <laughs> then they hire us to play the play. <coughs> so becoming conscious of the sacredness of sex, you see, it's really become conscious of greater dimensions to our lives, if you like. Not just this little human being meeting this little human being and da-da-da, like two Barbie dolls or something. All this is taking place in a great cosmic dance, a great cosmic play. And that's the last, and we could say final stage, when we realize that all distinctions are imaginary, then in a certain sense, everything becomes sexual. That everything we do and everything that we manifest is a kind of, uh, just like an ecstatic climax. A snap of the finger. A rustling of pages. Our breath. And now we have to use language a little symbolically here, but it's more than just a symbol. Everything is an expression of that ultimate bliss of which sex is a quite pronounced expression of in our lives. Everything has the same underlying motivation. It's all manifesting for bliss, for love, for joy. All those reasons that we originally wanted <laughs> to get together with that person. <laughs> it's everywhere. 
suffuses everything. As human beings, sex will certainly have its relatively mysterious, magical place in our lives, but we won't think of it as something out of context that isn't really what is going on everywhere all the time. I mean, if we want to be poetic, we could say what this cosmos is, is God making love to God. That is what the cosmos is. It has no other purpose or reason. It is a great celebration of that creativity and that joy and that bliss. That is all that's going on here. Consciousness constantly informing itself so it can realize its own inherent potential. So when we incorporate sex into our lives, spiritual lives, and as part of our spiritual practice, it's a very uh, straight way of arriving at these realizations and experiences, not just some sort of metaphysical idea, because it is so intense. So if we really treat it as a sacrament, as something holy, as something sacred, and we apply those principles, paying attention, practicing detachment from our own petty wants and desires, and then surrendering into it, there's a lot to be discovered. So, that's uh, my talk this morning on the three precepts of integrity, honor, and sexual restraint. Are there any questions or comments or experiences to share before we go on? Does somebody want to crack a window back there? Is anybody else get anyone in one? And you could maybe open one of these. Well, I, I certainly uh, accept and respect all these precepts. Uh, I'd like to just make a little comment about number eight when you finish time. Mm-hmm. What I think is interesting historically is that if you take away the historical dimension of this, I think a good question would be, why is number eight even there? Because everything around number eight, one through seven, nine and ten, take care of that particular situation like any intense relationship. It could be a parent and a child. It can be a marriage or a relationship. It can be you and your cat that that for you is a very, like you said, a glimpse of the bliss, Mm -hmm. etc., and if you look at, especially like number five, honesty, and it, like you said, 99% of the lousy things we do in life are because we're not true to ourselves and other people. And sex would be just one of those many activities. And I like what you said in the last, when, when everything blends in with this sort of demarcated little category, and it, it is all a union with everything else. So all I'm saying is, and I'll stop, is just that, to me... Number eight, which I understand because of our cultural context historically. But number eight really doesn't even need to be there. Everything else takes care of that. I understand. So. This is true. And all the precepts interlink. Sure. And when you start practicing and you get more deeply into it, you say, well, what am I practicing here? Integrity, <laughs> uh, honor, honesty. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And then at that point, it doesn't matter because you're following selfless action. That's really important thing. So these are, as I said, these are just ways to call our attention to what is going on in typical situations that arise in our everyday life. That's their purpose. And sex is certainly a big one. 
and especially in our culture, people are, have a lot of conflicting, ambiguous ideas about sex and whatnot. So this is just trying to give us a way. When you find yourself in that situation, it's like a bell going off saying, oh, remember. And always the ultimate remember is practice love and compassion for any of them. The, they all come back to that source. They're all streams that flow out of that source. So yes, in a sense, you're right. In a sense, you could dispense with honesty and the others would cover it, you know. Uh, Yes. Well, back to the part where you were talking about the white man with the forked tongue. In our society, it's uh, is you know it's so prevalent that it's not enough really for you to learn to watch what you say, watch what you promise. But you have to somehow school yourself not to count on on other promises. Because then when they lapse, then, then it's, you know, you do something bad. Your reaction is, is adverse. But you almost have to just go through life saying, I must do what I promise, and I must not count on another's promise. I think as a, as a matter of skillful means, you're, you're quite right. That the trouble with that attitude is if, if we think of it as a, an absolute position, it can make us hard and cynical. But as a matter of skillful means, and relating back to really the first precept of take responsibility for your life, let's say you're dealing with a person that never keeps their promise or rarely keeps their promise. And after a while, you notice this. Now, if you continue to rely on their promise and you keep getting burned, who's at fault? You are. Do you see what I mean? So you're right. You learn, oh, that person, for whatever reason, they're not mature enough, they're whatever, don't rely on their promise. It doesn't have to come with a lot of judgment about good or bad. It's just the reality. And if you keep insisting after a certain point, with which you have to decide that you know, you're going to hold them to the promise, that you're just creating your own suffering. And you keep blaming them because they didn't keep their promise. But you know better. You shouldn't have relied on their promise. You can be pleased that they, that they kept their promise, but you just can't allow yourself to, be, to feel negative because they didn't. Yes, exactly right. Very well put. Don't allow yourself to be negative just because they didn't. And feel pleased and try to encourage them when they do and you know, praise them or you know, whatever. But don't, yes, don't allow yourself to feel negative in that situation. That reminds me of something Dr. Wolf once said to me about precepts and um, spiritual practices in general. Um, you do your absolute best to practice with as much integrity and as meticulously and brutally as you can all the precepts and your spiritual practices. But the moment you expect that of another person, you're lost. <laughs> right. And this is, I'm glad you both bringing this up because one of the dangers is when we take these precepts for ourselves, then we start to judge everybody else in terms of the precepts. And for, from the point of view of a spiritual seeker on a mystical path, these precepts are not for society. That's a different discussion. Society needs precepts and standards and everything else. But we are taking them for our own benefit. And the minute you seize on the precept as a way of judging other people, you are perverting the precept. So you take it humbly. This is something I need for my practice, for my realization. Maybe these other people don't need precepts. Maybe they're so far advanced uh, that, you know, so, but I'm still in kindergarten. I need them. That's, I mean, it's a, 
that's a sort of a, a good antidote. You don't have to go quite that far unless you find yourself getting very proud of practicing the precepts. But these are not intended as a standard to judge other people by. They're intended to serve you on your path. I know what you mean, and I agree with it, but I found in my own life difficult to apply that to close relationships and intimate relationships. I don't mean just sexual, I mean close friends. But I've cut people out of my life ruthlessly because they haven't been honest, or they haven't upheld integrity, or they haven't kept their promises. And I know that I overreact to that because of my childhood, and I'm aware of all that, my conditioning and so on, the man, it's a big thing. But I I just don't want to relate to people closely who don't. It's been, it's been very challenging for me, this, this sort of dance of intimacy with friends, and do they keep their word or don't they, and do they keep their promises, and is this someone I should remain friends with if they don't, and at what point, you know, am I being too nitpicky here, and so it's been a constant evaluation of how to relate to others and what their own levels of precepts are. are. This is true, and again, I think it falls under skillful means, and uh, one of the things that you can do is to make your standards known, and one of the things that that often does, there are no foolproof guarantees, but when we actually have certain standards we live by, and we live by them, it tends to weed out people who, who don't appreciate that and respect it, and it tends to attract people to us who do. And so then it tends to reduce how much we have to decide whether we want to be with other people or not. They end up deciding. Because after a while, if somebody keeps asking you to tell a a little white lie, oh, say I'm not home, or this or that, and you keep saying no, they'll get upset, they'll get this, that, that, and then eventually they'll either not want to have anything to do with you anymore, or they might actually take an interest and be inspired. Yeah, because this can turn into a a sort of self-righteousness. It certainly can. Limiting the people you're with, and therefore uh, being too limited in one's life, and part of it is fear, and, you know, being hurt or being being promised things, and like a little child is promised something for Christmas doesn't get it. You know, this happened to me too often when I was a kid. So now it's oh, they said they were going to do something they didn't. Well, the, subtle, the subtlety and the ambiguity of that is challenging you into a deeper um, inquiry into your own honesty with yourself. What is essential that you cannot not do? In my own conduct or yes, also in terms of um, requiring particular behaviors or standards in your associates, friends, partners, etc. A lot of times we we pretend that we're accepting somebody's behavior but we're not being honest to ourselves or them because we have an agenda. So it's, it's actually asking us to go deeper into looking self, to self-reflecting on what honestly is important to us that we cannot deny. And in denying it, it's, there's something dishonest about that. So you can do that with humility. You don't have to do that with um, kind of anger, yeah, right. judgment. Mm-hmm. And it's also important to really understand we can love people and not live with them. <laughs> and no it's true there have been friends in my life I mean even long before on a spiritual path that I loved dearly and just could not live with them I would not be able to function so you know th- again this is 
each of these situations, as Andrea is saying, it gives us an opportunity to really look to see what we are attached to here. What, what is the <coughs> ego want here and what is true selflessness, true love and compassion, but skillful love and compassion, not some sort of artificial love and compassion uh, or self-righteous love and compassion. Do you know what I mean? And this is what a spiritual path is all about. We have to discover these things for ourselves. We have to discover through the struggle and the practice. Spiritual path is very simple, but it isn't easy. The principles are very simple, but they're not easy. Spiritual path is a great adventure. No adventure is great if there are no difficulties. Going from here to uh, the South Pole by dog sled is a great adventure because there are difficulties. Going from here to the 7-Eleven by dog sled is not a very, very great adventure, although there'll be some difficulties. Uh, can you say one more word about difficulties? Part of me, I mean, part of part of my training, my training here, even part of it says, as you said in the beginning, there are veils to our already enlightened self, mm-hmm. and the, the precepts will help us see these veils and remove them. Now, removing veils, you know, sounds very easy. You know? It's just you just sort of push them aside, and they just go right out of right out of the way. So there's part of me is saying, well, the spiritual path really has to do with letting go of things that I'm grasping, just removing these veils, just, just you know, coming down to what's reality, what's already here. And there's another part of me that says, no, you have to practice these precepts. You've got to spend time in um, insight meditation. You need to you know, meditate and hold yourself, and you need to work at this thing and strive and struggle in maybe 18 years, you know, maybe... So, could you comment on that dichotomy? Yes. First of all, as I say often, don't even think about the time involved. You don't worry about that. There is no standard time, and they range from you know 15 minutes to 30 years. One so moment. All it takes is one moment. Uh, the Tibetans have a wonderful expression about that. They say, uh, if you are digging for gold and you find gold the first time you stick a a shovel in the ground and somebody else takes 20 years to find the gold, what difference does it make to the gold? The gold is the gold. Gold doesn't care. So whether you are going to strike it rich the first uh, time you take a breath and pay attention to it or whether it's going to be 30 years of practice for pasana precepts and all that is totally irrelevant. And all this time itself is nothing but a blink in eternity. So who cares? Also, there are advantages of having a long path. There's uh, another Tibetan master who said, uh, don't ask me about teachings. I'm one who got to the roof without taking the stairs. So I don't know what to tell you. Only if you've taken stairs can you be helpful to other people. So then the business of struggle. This is the key paradox of a spiritual path. And it shows up in every little moment of our practice. It is so simple. You're right. It's just simply let go. Surrender. Just surrender yourself. Now, as long as you are trying to surrender yourself, there's a you there that is surrendering. 
And the you has got some little selfish agenda. Well, if I surrender myself, I'll get enlightened. No, no. Surrender that I that wants to surrender itself to get enlightened. So it gets subtle. And we can think of it, and it's often thought of and presented in the spiritual traditions, traditions as we have a very wily adversary, the ego. And we think we have uncovered an attachment, and to a certain extent we have, but there are subtler attachments even under that. So we just keep working. We don't know when we are going to strike gold. We just keep digging. The trick is to convert the path from being a chore into uh, being a joy is to get fascinated with the process of finding gold itself. So, for instance, our teacher, Dr. Wolf, thinking about this analogy, uh, his sort of worldly hobby was gold mining. (laughs) All through the Depression, he supported himself through gold mining. He was like a prospector. He'd go out in the mountains, the Sierras, and he would mine for gold. And he knew all about it. And it's one of his favorite non-spiritual topics to talk about. And he would tell you how you have to look at the lay of the land and find where there was a riverbed. And, you know, he would... He was fascinated by the whole process. He loved being in the outdoors in the summers when he'd go out during the Depression and spend all summer out in the mountains mining for gold. So it was a joy to him. In fact, he never struck it rich with gold, with that kind of gold. I mean, he he got by through the Depression. He made enough, but he never hit the mother low. He hit the mother low spiritually. So it's tricky. If you lose all sight of the end of the path, the goal, you're liable to go around in circles. You're liable to get fascinated by all sorts of paranormal phenomena that may manifest. You're liable to get fascinated by theories and thoughts and so forth. You know, If you lose sight of that North Star by which you're steering your path. On the other hand, if you're always focused on that and never focused on what you are actually doing in the present, you never get anywhere. So you, you want to remember, yes, enlightenment is the goal in the sense that I am not going to be satisfied with anything less. But most of our attention, most of the time on a spiritual path is right there in the moment. What is going on in this moment? How does this work? Whether, and whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, that's another big hurdle to get over. Whether it's difficult or easy, they're both fascinating. And when we're struggling with something, if we can take the attitude of a kind of a challenge, do you know what I mean? I'm going to get to the bottom of this. But why is this so difficult? Then that becomes fascinating. So, you know, the spiritual path is all of life, everything. That's why, oh, sometimes it seems easy, sometimes it seems difficult, all these questions arise. There's nothing outside the spiritual path. But what we're trying to finally do is dig deeper, get to the bottom of it, get beyond our normal ways of responding to life and come out of our mental concepts, beyond the mind, beyond our deluded emotional responses. That requires looking in detail. Yes? Um, Can you speak to um, the issue of that motivation to find one's way on the path? Is it lifetimes of pain that create that first awakening? Can you speak to that a little bit? 
whether it's lifetimes of pain, which is a cosmological question, or whether it's just intense pain in the moment, it doesn't matter. But for most people, yes, pain and suffering is the motive to go on a spiritual path. And the first insight is, however we've been trying to resolve this or get rid of this suffering or, or find happiness before is not working. We, we come to a point in our lives where what we've been doing before isn't working. Then we're ready for something quite different. And then we're ready for faith and mystery. And whenever we go into the unknown, whenever we approach a mystery, there's fear, there's, you know, all this stuff comes up. And we need a little faith. But most people are motivated by some form of suffering. Sometimes it's a kind of mental suffering. Our teacher that Andrea's been talking about, Dr. Wolf, was very philosophical sort of person. And he had a tremendous desire to know truth. And not knowing truth was suffering for him. Do you see what I mean? So that's what motivated him. It's the carrot and the stick. A lot of people don't even have a taste of the carrot when they first start on a spiritual path. Then they get... Oh, they get some spiritual experiences. They get some insights. The things that they never experienced before, that becomes what leads them on. It's not just pure faith. It's a dynamic faith. It's a testing faith. Does this work? Oh, yes, meditation does calm my mind a little bit. Okay, now I trust that. Now I'll go on. Do you see what I mean? But we are driven 99% of the time for purely selfish motives to go on a spiritual path. We are suffering, we want to put it into suffering. And the only difference between a spiritual path and any other activity is a spiritual path says, yes, there is a way to end suffering, but it's going to cost you yourself. (laughs) And then the paradox becomes, as we were talking about, how do you give up yourself? As long as you're giving up yourself, you are still there. And that becomes the ultimate paradox the mind cannot solve. That's why mysticism is beyond the mind, beyond concepts, beyond thinking. Is that helpful? All right, why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to hang around and have some tea, check out the library, chat, until I see you again, peace to you all. Thank you.